Welcome to Round the Table, a fortnightly show for young people to discuss the big stories of the last couple of weeks. Each week, we're joined by Conservatives, Labour, the SNP and a rotating fourth party. Here to tell us more about it is this week's presenter, David Chipakupaku. Hello and welcome to Round the Table. Before we begin, we invited the SNP to come and join us this week. However, no one was available. On the show this week, millennials are set to be the most overweight generation since records began. Cancer research has found that every 7 in 10 of those born between the early 80s and mid-90s will be overweight by the time they reach middle age. But what's causing this increase in our weight? And has education failed to teach us about healthy eating? Forget about 007, it's all about 00 Jeremy Corbyn. We discussed this week's Brexit speech in Coventry made by the Labour leader, and also the supposed links to a Czech spy. What did Jeremy Corbyn mean by changes coming in a Facebook video? And should Ben Bradley, an MP for the Conservative Party, have publicly discussed this story of Corbyn supposedly sharing state secrets when it only came from one very unreliable source? We'll discuss that and more with the panel. The SNP are going to be bringing in minimum pricing for alcohol right across Scotland, and public consultation from the Scottish Government shows that there is a support for 50p as a minimum price per unit. The government says it will help cut numbers of problem drinkers, but the Greens and Lib Dems have said that this minimum pricing should be higher, and Labour have said that the money raised really needs to come back to the state rather than going back to retailers. Is this tax really just going to hurt the poorest, or would raising the tax to 60p instead actually be better? We'll find out what our panel think. And every show we know and love uses intentionally or otherwise social media, from reality shows like Made in Chelsea to political discussion programs like Question Time. Stars seem to appear overnight on Twitter thanks to our infatuation with contestants on University Challenge. But is TV being ruined by social media? And is every show we are watching turning into reality television? That's all this week on Round the Table. So welcome to this week's Round the Table, and joining us this week are... Thaddeus, I'm from the Scottish Conservatives. Jack, I'm the co-vice president of the Scottish Young Liberals. And Kai, I'm from Scottish Labour. Welcome, folks. So we're going to kick things off with a story that's come out this week, that millennials are set to be the most overweight generation since records began. Uh, Cancer research has found that every 7 in 10 of those born between the early 80s and mid-90s will be overweight by the time they reach middle age. And Britain is the most obese nation in Western Europe, and case rates are rising faster than in any other developed nation. Um, Thaddeus, I'll come to you first. What do you think is causing this, this epidemic? Well, firstly, I'd, I'd say we always have to be careful with these future projections. I mean, people make proje- projections all the time, and they're very rarely absolutely correct. So to say that we will definitely be incredibly obese as a generation is not necessarily true. But as to what's causing it, I would say it's poor diet and not enough exercise, and too much sitting around, probably, and poor education. Jack? Uh, well, it's got Liberal Democrats would like to be a kind of evidence-based party, and... In 2016, the Scottish government produced figures to say that 65% of adults uh, were actually over overweight, not obese. That's got a separate thing, um, and loads of factors have been that. Mostly, I think it's due to a uh, disparities between the areas of high depri- deprivation and areas of low deprivation. Uh, that the figures are kind of startlingly different there. Okay. I mean, yeah. Simply put, um, going on from what you just said, actually, there is a stark difference in areas. Um, which have poverty, which will, you know, undoubtedly be, unfortunately, more obese. So there's a number of ways this can be treated, um, definitely through education. How we do that is always a dilemma because we've been trying to treat this in our education system for quite a few decades now. It's been 
quite a crisis problem, but also how we materially improve people's living standards so that they are not just given better choices as options, but they're enabled to actually take those choices and take action on those choices. And I think if we can do that, we might address some of the causes of this. There's been suggestions that have come out of uh, banning advertising for junk food before the watershed on in kids' television. Um, there's absolutely no advertising for junk food. Do you think that part of the, the targeting for this is going after, going after young people and children to make sure that they eat better? It, it, it's it's quite possible. I mean, there's definitely parallels with the with the smoking advertising ban that, that came in in a few decades ago now, um, and we did see a, a decrease of people kind of taking up smoking because of that. Again, it, it comes down to quite an ideological question: uh, Is it the state's job to regulate and say you can't see this, you can't be impressioned by this? But at the same time, it has actually achieved results in that regard, and I don't see why it couldn't for uh, for unhealthy eating. Thaddeus, should we stop junk food advertising before the watershed? I, I completely agree. I think I do think we should do that. As you said, it's worked. It's worked with tobacco. Um, it's worked a lot with alcohol as well. If you stop enticing younger people to eat eat a poor diet, then they, they will. Then hopefully they, they will get um, fitter. But I would say it, it's not it's not the panacea. I mean, a lot of it comes from parents who grew up in their own households, and it's hard to change the attitudes of parents and how how they treat their children. So banning food advertising won't won't do everything. Following on from that, Kai, it's not just about what we eat, it's also the amount of exercise that we do. How should we be encouraging other people to, to exercise more? I mean, we've already made a start in the past 10 years. Both the Scottish and British governments have had several plans that they've slowly implemented to increase the amount of education provision um, in our, uh, sorry, exercise in our education provision. Now, I remember my time at school, which wasn't that long ago, but I think the required amount was say two hours a week um that amount is going up again from the scottish government um supposed to go up mid this year to i think what is five hours um but i don't know if that actually fundamentally addresses the problem because i don't think that addresses the culture it just kind of you know i've been to gym classes where plenty of people and i'm sure you all will have where plenty of people kind of are not really involved they don't really enjoy it they kind of so i think it's because we kind of have a culture of avoiding exercise and not being particularly sporty. And I think we need to do more to actually address the culture than just kind of force kids to sit through more PE sessions. One of the re- one of the things that was there to change the way that we think about exercise was the Commonwealth Games and the Olympics. Do you think they've done their job in terms of the legacy that's been left behind for that? I don't think they've done anywhere near as much as people had hoped. I mean, I know a couple of people, me included, bought a bike off the Olympics and did a bit more cycling, but nothing nothing particularly serious. Um, I, if I'm honest, I, th- I think the real way to tackle this obesity ep- so-called epidemic is to do with pricing. I, th- I know a lot of people in my party disagree, but I think minimum pricing, high taxes on junk food would do far more to stopping parents buying bad food for their children than any number of, of PE classes. Jack, what do you think about higher taxes on junk food and unhealthy food? Uh, he just makes a very valid point there. Um, again, what, lots of different kind of methods have been tried. And going back to what Kai was saying about PE as well, a lot of young people just don't respond well to PE. Um, and they want to do a, an active activity that they enjoy. And that could be anything from skateboarding to free running or anything like that. It doesn't necessarily have to be uh, done through the school. Uh, so again, both very valid points there, and uh, again, it just comes down to a bit of an ideological kind of uh, standpoint in the end. Saying that, do we need to ex- uh, extend what is considered 
exercise in order to get more young people involved with different types, you know, getting fitter. Kai? Yeah, I would definitely tend to agree. It's a very good point you bring up about um, free running and skateboarding, actually. Um, because, I mean, it's again, speaking this very anecdotally to my own personal experience, but I don't actually remember being presented really with that many options of PE. And, you know, as someone who was quite sporty but didn't really ever enjoy PE, I think I probably would have enjoyed it far more if I'd been presented with more exciting and less kind of, shall we say, old-fashioned kind of sports. Um, and I think more people would in general. And I still think it's also about um, making sure that that support is not just in schools, though, but in the broader community. So is that you have functioning community centres and sports centres that children can go to. So that it's not just something they're forced to do in like a class, but they can continue as a real passion and make a passion project. Do you think we need a, a change in our attitudes to food as a whole? I, I suppose we do. I mean, how much value would you, you put on something? Um, when I was at primary school, we had a, a fruit supplier there, and I believe this was standard across Scotland, and I remember the school... He would, you know, send send a kind of bill onto the parents, and it would be eighty pence to a pound for an apple a day, and you compare that to a packet of Alien Crisps, for example, which was thirty pence, and the culture of food becomes, you know, a necessity. You're getting this much energy from a packet of crisps versus you're getting this much energy from an apple, but you're paying, you know, less than half for that packet of crisps. So I, I think that's a very worrying part of food culture right so now. How do we make sure that we? get kids to eat healthier without you know cutting money out of farmers pockets I, I suppose the the best the best way to do that would be to yes to, to be honest I wouldn't actually have the answer to that one because again you, you do cut something down and, and down the line it does I mean you can get mass-produced uh, farms um, etc so it's not just small uh, orchards that are producing apples for example but if you had larger produce farms then the farmer could make uh, a higher profit margin from the surplus well alternatively sorry you mm. increase the price of the packet of crisps you just you just say packet of crisps is now a pound rather than 30p put minimum pricing you increase taxes on junk food and then there is that price incentive for people to at least think again when they go to buy a packet of crisps or a chocolate bar compared to an apple mm. i want to ask finally um in regards to education and healthy eating, have we, as a country, failed to to inform ourselves properly, or do you think that we've just we've just not done it right? Well, I think obviously we have failed. I mean, we're talking here about obesity rising, mm. about us being the fattest generation ever. There was a story in the paper today about policemen c- consistently failing t- fitness tests because well, they're not fit enough. So, and we're one of the fattest countries in Europe. So obviously, we have failed and. It's difficult to see how we get out of it other than, as I say, increasing prices on junk food and educating our children and our adults better. Um, I wouldn't say as a country we've failed to inform, and I think that's that's a key difference, um, but we've failed to make uh, healthy food accessible to to people in all income brackets. Um, As I said earlier about the example of the apples. Um, But, you know, I think there has been targeted advertising campaigns by Scottish government, by outside agencies over the last decade and a half. and again, how effective is advertising? But at the same time, I think as a country, I think we've done well to inform ourselves of this, but we need to take the next step and make sure it's actually practical for people to buy their children a healthy food. Is the fact of the matter not that we now need big words like cancer and you know disease and illness and death to get our attention into, into issues like this? I think perhaps, unfortunately, yeah. Um, 
going on from what's been said earlier about food culture. Food culture has actually been something that's been written about quite a lot in the media recently. I don't know if you noticed, there was a, there was a BBC kind of summary article out today. It was in The Guardian, The Times, and about the lack of, well, what was a perceived lack of a food culture in Britain. And what that essentially means is um, it's usually comparing to Mediterranean countries, which are very well known for having their food cultures mm. and diverse ranges of food. Um, the UK does not have much left of what is a distinctive foods in its own culture, and especially healthy foods. Um, and I think it's a very interesting point. Um, and I definitely think, you know, it, it's got to go beyond education and it's got to be more in not just the people who are, you know, uh, growing up now, but it's got to be current adults as well. We need to be, you know, creating a culture which is positive about healthy eating, not just educating younger people. And I think it's not just about educating as well. It is, as you've said, it's about actually taking action to ensure that people make better life choices because unfortunately you know people will not always take the best path and it's not always as simple as that no matter how much we inform them to do it we need to actually provide some kind of financial incentives for them to do it uh, we'll have a chance to discuss about uh, the b word that is brexit in a few minutes but first we're going to talk about uh, this huge story that's come <coughs> out over the last couple of weeks jeremy corbyn was supposedly ha- had links to uh czech's secret service a czech spy um a Czech diplomat even, who was later expelled as, as a spy, and he claimed that Mr. Corbyn had been recruited by himself as an intelligence asset and was paid by Czechoslovak Secret Service for his work. These claims were then reported in papers uh, like The Sun, The Daily Mail, The Telegraph and The Express, but then they were called out on national media by uh, Czech um, Secret Service archivists and by the Labour Party themselves. Jeremy Corbyn then made a statement on Facebook saying that change was coming for media outlets. I want to start off with that. What did he mean by that, Kai, that change is coming? I guess what he means by change is coming is breaking up what is an ownership of the media that unfortunately is centred around very few with very much. And what that means is essentially, Rupert Murdoch's a classic example, but he's very much a caricature example. But to use that example, um, small groups of people or singular people who own vast swathes of the media who aren't always able to set every story but are able to set a direction for the media for different papers and I think often what is important is not when we're discussing here the influence of but I guess big money on the media is not how they report things but what is reported the very fact that the Jeremy Corbyn issue was reported so widely without there having been any real fact checking or sourcing beforehand shows that there was an influence in the media there by people with special interests, which <laughs> probably conflict with Corbyn's interests. Saying things like change is coming coming, and the the way that he put that video out on Facebook rather than co- having a conversation with, say, a newspaper or a broadcaster, that might make some people in the media very scared as to the kind of sanctions that he may impose on media outlets. Do you not think that that was slightly you know, scary for those that work Perhaps in the media? Perhaps it should have been on the BBC or something. But it's important to remember that most of what the Labour Party has actually proposed in recent years is already policy in most European countries. In fact, some of it is still policy in the US, which is not known for its massive policies. What I'd be more worried about is um, what is currently going on with the media. If you remember what happened with Snowden and The Guardian, when essentially the police were sent to The Guardian offices threatening to arrest delete and destroy equipment which they did destroy equipment if the guardian did not ditch their snowden uh case and delete all their evidence 
And that was done by the British government then of David Cameron. So I think we should be far more worried about that than the what actually has been proposed by my standards is quite moderate um, of how we break up the media into what is essentially a less centred around one or two people owning loads and essentially far more small sources, which is, I think, what Labour more advocates for. Well, I think it's always important in a democracy that you have a plethora of, of new sources. I, And I wouldn't actually oppose making sure that individuals like Rupert Murdoch don't own too much of the media. And I know, obviously, Karen Bradley, the who was Culture Secretary, put a halt on Rupert Murdoch buying Sky News outright. So it's not as if the Tories aren't doing anything on that. But I, d- I do get worried by Jeremy Corbyn saying we are coming for you, or, or whatever his words were. On th- that, that does sound a bit tyrannical when he's had a new story that is, is contrary to his interests. If, if, as we said, he'd responded a bit more moderately on BBC News, I'd be a bit more willing to listen to him. But it sounds like he was just having a tantrum because... But he, he's always done that. He's always used different media platforms. Yeah, and I've always, I've always disliked him for it. I don't, I, don't, I don't mind him using different media platforms, but on this particular issue, not using the traditional media platforms, I don't think really helped his argument. It made him sound a bit, a bit dangerous, to be honest, to a, to a free press, which is what we all want. Jack? I think uh, Jeremy Corbyn was actually completely right to to call out uh, many of the newspaper organisations that uh, that published these unverified stories, these revelations. I mean, it's what I believe is that regulation does have a place in the media, but it can't impose on the actual freedom of speech of that. But on the other hand, there needs to be a, a duty of the press to actually ensure the reporting is accurate. And you can see why someone like Jeremy Corbyn wouldn't take to his name getting kind of dragged through like that. And he does have a huge social media following, which a social media following which no other UK political party leader has ever had. Uh, he's chose to utilise that. In the EU, technology companies get uh, separated because they are becoming a, mo- a monopoly or a duopoly. And in the UK, it's always up for debate whether Ofcom is actually doing their job if they're reporting complaints well personally think they are but everyone's got slightly different standards there so i think how jeremy corbyn responded was actually quite appropriate but you're saying he's he utilized the the platform that he always has but did he utilize that correctly because the, the language that he was using like thaddeus was saying could be seen as to some as quite almost tyrannical yes but i think in the wrong context a lot of language could be seen as fairly tyrannical in regards to what he was saying, he was pointing out that this is a, an untruth that has, that has been said about me. Whether that was the right occasion to bring up what his policy and regulation is, and then he kind of thinly veiling it behind that phrase, we're coming for you. I don't think that was entirely appropriate, but I can understand why he done it. I want to talk, uh, Thaddeus, about Ben Bradley um, and the tweet that he made discussing this story. Should he have publicly discussed this, this story when it came from really one quite unreliable source. When the media reported this story, they, I think that they have one, that there is definitely one meeting that took place between Jeremy Corbyn <laughs> and this Czech spy. That that definitely is the case. The Czech spy alleges three. Jeremy Corbyn says, I think, only says one. it was one, yes. Yeah. Um, so it's not as if, it's not as if this story is based entirely on nothing. There is There is something here. And furthermore, Jeremy Corbyn refuses to let his the files on him kept by the former East German intelligence services be published. So there is, he's, he may be hiding something there, we don't know. Ben Bradley, right, the, mm-hmm. the MP, he 
did what we were all out, what all the rest of us were doing and spoke about it and maybe his his own language was un, was unadvisable on twitter and he did delete it and apologize so i see i see but nothing he has wrong history there. on this was this really is this the final nail in the coffin really for him because he has had previous experiences where he said the things on social media that were seen as very inflammatory and this was a very high profile case again with his name attached to it is that should he go even further than what he's done and what resign well what i don't are you know suggesting? well a lot of people have suggested that no, because I of the things he's said in the past and now with this added on top of the pile well, to be too honest i think sending one inadvisable tweet is far is, is far less bad than meeting an the you know a diplomat of an enemy nation during the cold war i think what jeremy corbyn did is actually far worse and he should resign ben bradley he yeah, he, he made a mistake he apologized we should all just move on okay is this the same ben bradley that called for euthanasia on Twitter. The same Ben Bradley that has had a history of making absolutely atrocious comments about disabled people and about the unemployed. I do think, you know, I wouldn't blame the Tory party overall for the actions of one person because it's obvious that Ben Bradley should not be trusted with Twitter. <laughs> but um, I would say towards the, as you were saying about the meeting with Jeremy Corbyn and the supposed spy, Jeremy Corbyn did not know he was a spy. I mean, that is the purpose of a spy. The spy never marked in his books, in the authorities in the Czechoslovak, in what is now Czechia? Czechia. They just changed yeah. the name, yeah. yeah. Um, they said they have no evidence that he ever collaborated with the Czech authorities in any way. There is no evidence of that at all. Now, if there does arise evidence of that, sure, we can take that as an issue. But so far, we know that Jeremy Corbyn met, and there's some circumstance, we don't know whether it was for five minutes or for six hours, with a Czechoslovakian spy who he didn't know was a Czechoslovakian spy and told him nothing. Czechoslovakian spy has alleged that Jeremy Corbyn told him about the content of Margaret Thatcher's breakfast. He then alleged a bit later that he helped organise Live Aid as part of a Czechoslovakian conspiracy. So I don't know if he's a particularly reliable source. Uh, and in, retur- uh, in terms of the Stasi files on Jeremy Corbyn, I believe the response was, we have very little. <laughs> we have, like, nothing on him. Um, because he wasn't considered, and I'm sure people love to hear this, he was not considered to be particularly dangerous or inspiring or someone that they thought would be in a power structure within the Labour Party or the UK government. So he was not a particular person of interest, is I believe the phrase he used. He he is a person of interest in the Czech files, though. He's not classed as a spy or an agent, but he's classed as a person of interest. In the Czech files, yeah, yeah. he was classed as a person of interest. But that doesn't mean he had any contact, just that he had slight influence over government. No, I mean, I think no one could ever expect Jeremy Corbyn to have the competence to do anything like that. Going back to what you were saying briefly, Kai, about Ben Bradley saying he shouldn't be trusted with Twitter, does he not have every right as a as a member of Parliament, as a as a you know representative of the people, to say what he likes about certain situations? Oh, of course, he has every right, and I think he should be able, if he wants to leave his tweets up, he can do so. But he will face unfortunate you know consequences to doing so, whether they be to do with libel and legal consequences, as Jeremy Corbyn's lawyers made him basically say that long apology that met all the legal guidelines, um, or he may face public backlash of other people using their free speech to condemn him. Um, I don't know what else to say. I mean, of course he should be able to use Twitter, but I think maybe the Conservative Party should um, maybe use their internal, a bit of an internal restraint and tell him to avoid it for a little bit um, and maybe improve his online presence somehow. Ben Bradley, I think he's just absolutely hang his head in shame. Um, the UK only has 650 elected representatives that we send to Westminster, and I, you can't honestly tell me that's the best we can send down. Absolutely appalling behaviour. I mean, 
at school, a child started making up rumours about someone else to discredit them, it would rightly not go down very well and the teachers would probably have to step in. This mudslinging isn't what we should be expecting from elected representatives. And as what I would say is he needs to think very carefully about his future of his career. But on the other hand, this Conservative Party have promoted people like Toby Young, who have also had a history of uh, saying very controversial things and, you know, get getting uh, into jobs that they may be qualified for but might not necessarily be appropriate for. Uh, is what I would say is to the 75,000-odd voters in Ben Bradley's constituency is to remember this when it next come out. If he's been a good local MP to them, they should be the ultimate decision-makers on what his political future is. But mudslinging it goes from not just social media, it extends itself to the House. Mm-hmm. So where do we draw the line between saying something on social media and saying something in the highest office in the land, one of the highest offices in the we land. We draw the land both in and out of that office by not making things up. I, I think it, it's it's quite clear, you know, we have libel laws in Britain for a reason. They're fairly strict, they're fairly well adhered to. There is pers- uh, freedom, certain freedoms guaranteed in the House of items you can say without a uh, repercussion. Uh, however, it's still... A responsibility as a lawmaker and again only one of 650 lawmakers to be sensible of what you say and not to use it for political point scoring i think i should stress here that he did apologize and retract and delete yeah. his tweet so it's not as yeah. if he's standing by it. he realized he made a mistake you know he's he i don't think it's really that that big of an issue to be honest it's it's he's apologized jeremy corbyn gave a speech trying to clarify a bit more as to the <coughs> labor party's stance on brexit uh, has this helped or hindered the party's position on Brexit? Kai, do you want to start off? Um, I think it was a welcome clarification because, I mean, if we let my internal Labour Party politics go in here, the Labour has not been clear enough on its stance. And there is an obvious strategy in that that it is obviously more beneficial for Labour to let the Conservatives lose this fight with the European Union and for the Labour Party then to say, ah, we can fix the situation. So, I mean, I think that's just obvious. I'm, not going to lie. Um, I'm a bit disappointed to see that although freedom of movement has been mentioned, it's not been something that's been f- at the forefront of our discussions. Because personally, I think that's one of the most important things in the European Union, and we need some kind of sustainable condition for that. Um, I mean, the the sum- it was essentially a summation of what Labour has been saying for a while, which is we support a form of customs union with the European Union when uh, we eventually leave, which I think is actually the policy of most parties. It's just that there's been a bit of fiff-faffing around what is going on and how this is. But honestly, I don't think they adequately explained what that policy is yet. Um, and I would like to see the Labour Party clarify more their position on things like free movement and even on the customs union. What kind of customs union do they want? Because we can theoretically guess what kind of customs union Labour would like, but they've not really stated it, have they? Jack... Lib Dems are the only party in mainstream politics that are actively campaigning to keep us in the EU. What did you make of Jeremy Corbyn's speech? I've got to agree with, with Kai to a, a big degree there. Is I don't actually know what Labour's position really is now. Um, he says he wants a customs union, but not the customs union. Um, again, it, it's this general vagueness that puts people who aren't necessarily in the kind of political bubble like myself... Um, and all of us in this room, it puts people who aren't in that bubble off of politicians because they're not committing to anything. They're waiting for it to go wrong so they can swoop in and, you know, get elected kind of thing. 
And I, I think it's very disingenuous to repeatedly ignore the millions of e-residents that are currently living here. And that's one of the main reasons the Lib Dems want an exit from Brexit, is that the status that these people have been put in, they've been put in limbo, uh, it's, it's totally unfair. Uh, they keep the economy going, they, they contribute to the economy just like everyone else who's not from the EU or people who were born here from. And being one of the most pressing issues, and not to touch upon that in his speech in uh, Coventry, is just not good enough, I would say. Thaddeus, did this speech put um, Brexit-supporting Labour members at ease, do you think? Well, I can't really speak for Labour members. I, as it's been mentioned, Jeremy Corbyn did clarify some things and, and not others, and I think Labour is, is particularly torn between those who do want to end free movement and those who don't, but I, I don't know about the, the internal Labour politics. My, my main thought is that this, the main purpose of this speech is not to clarify Labour's position on Brexit at all, it's to lay a huge and quite obvious trap to the Conservatives by trying to get people like Anna Soubry, Nicky Morgan, some more soft Brexiteers in the Tory party to vote with Labour on a customs union, which could then try and bring down Theresa May's government. That seems to be the cynical goal of Jeremy Corbyn here, rather than anything specific on Brexit. I was going to ask, what do, you, what do we all think are the chances of something like that happening, of people like Nicky Morgan going and voting with Labour? I mean, I think it's, it's possible, but I actually believe that, although I do agree that the, this manoeuvring is specifically, you know, it's for that type of thing, and to make sure that the public, you know, keeping the Remain siding Labour voters and the Leave-sided Labour voters on side and possibly expanding in both areas. But I don't think it's that likely, to be honest. I think if the Conservative Party ends up hosting an election early, it will be so from another issue, more internally making. I highly doubt that even a few votes on this would bring down the government, even if they did lose on this one issue. I don't think it would bring down the government because obviously there's the Fixed Term Parliament Act, so it's it's really unsure who how how elections would work. But I think it would utterly destroy Theresa May's credibility and any remaining authority she has in the party if she loses on the customs union and she's she, since she's made it such a big issue. So it would cause the Tory party to go into complete meltdown and, as you say, cause an election on another on another issue. Do, do we think that Jeremy Corbyn is in constant general election mode? Do you think that he's constantly waiting for Theresa May to step outside number 10 and say we're having another general election? Because many people have said that he does seem to be in that frame of mind of campaigning constantly rather than focusing on, on issues. I mean, if you, if you, I mean, it's not public knowledge, but the Labour Party has already essentially pre-selected most of its candidates for the next election. In most cases, they are the same candidates for the last election who did not win, but not, not in every case by all means. So the SEC, which is the Scottish um, body, which decides all the candidates for the Scottish constituencies at Westminster, has already decided which will be all-female shortlists. They're beginning to finalise the candidates, although some are already finalised. And there very much is a plan that we will keep campaigning. And I've been campaigning since uh, in constituencies. The idea is that if we keep campaigning throughout, no matter when the election comes, we'll be ready for it. And it's also too, and I think all political parties should do this, to build a common connection with their people, to consistently you know, go out into the community. I think we should all be doing that, whether we're elected or not, so as our ideas and our discourse continues, not just in the election time, which is a bit of a narrow view of democracy. We should be having these discussions and making sure people are politically engaged right throughout the year. As we're going to move on to minimum pricing for alcohol. So there's been a public consultation from the Scottish Government which shows support for 50p per unit as a minimum base price 
for alcohol. Uh, the government says it will help cut numbers of problem drinkers in Scotland, uh, but the Greens and the Lib Dems have said that this is this minimum pricing should be higher, and Labour have also said that the money raised sh- we needs to come back to the state rather than going to the retailers, so any extra money that is raised currently, uh, from May rather, will go to back to supermarkets and drink retailers. I just want to just throw this out to you guys. Do you think this is a, a tax that's tax that's actually going to hurt the poorest, or is it actually going to tackle the problem of of, of over drinking in Scotland? Um, I'll start because I'm actually very conflicted on this issue myself. So we love conflict, ah, <laughs> um, especially inner conflict. Um, so I think on one hand, yeah, that is true. It will undoubtedly punish, so to say, the poorest, and there's not 100 percent evidence that this will significantly reduce um, alcoholism and related effects however at the same time I do feel that we should be taking quite a hard line on reducing alcoholism um, and all the related effects such as heart disease and I think that we do need to take quite you know strong action and quite a lot of the stuff um, around cigarettes around you know smoking ban the packaging and then the plain packaging and then the you know, they have boards over it so you can't actually see the products in most places. Um, those aren't necessarily policies I ideologically agree with, but they have actually had quite a big influence. So is the increased taxation, tobacco and alcohol generally. So I would like to say that in practice, I support it. But in theory, I think it is a bit more of a, a policy that does punish those who don't have as much in enjoying the little things in life, so to say. Thaddeus? Well... Uh- I think if, if someone is really committed to getting drunk and having lots of alcohol, no amount of minimum pricing will will stop that, I think. But instruments like these, and I know I'm at odds with some people on the libertarian wing of my party who think it's awful, I actually think it's a good idea. Methods like these, I think, will stop people who who would need to think twice about making that extra purchase. And if, if, they, only make, if they only buy five alcoholic drinks in a night or in a week, for example, rather than 10, 15 because of the higher prices, I think that's a good idea. I don't like rhetoric such as punish. I don't think that's, as much as I disagree with the SNP government, I don't think they're trying to punish poor, poorer people. It's trying to persuade people by, by, by making them think of their wallet and their salary to make better decisions for themselves and their families. Jack, higher price, you're wanting this to go up even yes. more to, te- to 60p. 60p, yeah. Why do you believe that? We believe that it should be going up to 60 pence to actually keep up with the rate of inflation. The the ma- main concern the Lib Dems actually have is that uh, admittance to hospital of alcohol-related injuries um, and uh, other things like al- alcohol poisoning uh, have been trending up during the last few years. And the NHS is something we, we do need to look out for. We do need to pay for it somehow. And by putting up a taxation on the one of the major causes of, of hospitalisation, we're effectively justifying it by saying this money is actually going towards resolving the problem. And what do you say to people who believe that doing this is a is a tax on those who don't have as much and are spending their, their money on cheaper alcohol? I, I What I'd say to them is similar arguments were made to a much lesser extent, to be fair, to the carrier bag tax. And is what we've seen there is we've seen people who have adapted to it, they're using paper bags or bringing their own bags type of thing. Um, the, the addiction, the reliance on alcohol isn't necessarily ingrained to us. And I think it's uh, important that 
as I say, we, we fund the NHS using that money. Otherwise, it's just going to become completely unsustainable. You say that we, we don't have alcoholism ingrained in us, but we have got a very big drinking culture in Scotland. You know, parties happen for, you know, very many of us will have been to uh, a shindig, shall we say, mm-hmm. um, and have had an excess of alcohol. So do we not need to change our thinking as a nation? And is this the first steps or is this, what do you, what do you make of that? Well, it's an interesting point. I mean, how how can a government really change a uh, a culture, and how do you do that without encroaching on people's personal freedoms? I mean, one of the the main causes of this has been supermarkets. I think who have been selling alcohol in bulk compared to maybe going down to your local pub, and and uh, you know enjoying a social drink there. And I think it's this it's this buying in bulk which has facilitated the problem so much. I think if drinking in moderation such as going down to your local pub, I think would would, uh, would solve the problem quite quite a ways. Thaddeus, you've said that you disagree with the majority of your party that and you agree with this this kind of legislation. Do you think that do you agree with the Lib Dems and the Greens that it should go up to sixty P and go further, or do you think fifty P is a, a reasonable base? I think when they're just when we're just starting the policy, I think fifty p is probably a reasonable base. We'll see, we'll, we'll see how it works out. If it looks like it needs to go up, well then I might side with the Liberal Democrats. It might look like it should go down. In which case, I'm, I'd like to be guided by experience here rather than any sort of ideological mm-hmm. uh, route. If I might just for a minute, um, mm-hmm. it's just on top of my head, I was reading a study actually. So I study social policy, um, and I was reading a study. Um, I think it was. I want to say it was by the Red Cross, but I, don't quote me on that because I read a lot of random studies for that course. Um, and it was essentially saying that, if you remember, this is quite a while ago now, um, the Scottish government introduced legislation so is that under-18s could not be legally in pubs and bars after 8 o'clock at night. Um, and this was intended to reduce the drinking culture, uh, ensure that children weren't kind of in a way, groomed into a drinking culture if their parents were bringing them there, you know, at night to, if their dad was bringing them when they were having a pint with their friends and that type of thing. So they wouldn't see that kind of culture going on and they'd be doing other things. But actually, one of the very interesting points the study raised is that may well have had a correlation with the increased sales of everyone's Scottish, favourite Scottish product, Buckfast. Um, because a lot of those who are underage, who should, of course, not be buying that anyway, um, were taking to the streets instead of um, spending time inside pubs, where they would still be, don't get me wrong, illegally purchasing alcohol. However, it's, a, it's an interesting question. Would you rather them doing that in a, a pub which is some kind of community, or would you rather them doing that in the streets? So it's interesting how those policies might actually have counterintuitive effects, effects. And I do think it's important to remember that the minimum pricing is regressive, whether we like it or not. It is perhaps, you know, I would agree with the Labour line that we should be using the money we get to actually improve people's health, not just discouraging people from buying the products, but we should be taxing instead of using minimum pricing to ensure that, you know, money is going back into our services to ensure we actually treat those who are suffering from alcoholism just now. Do you think that alcohol manufacturers would get behind that because there was a long legal process because this legislation was originally suggested by the SNP in 2012 and it's taken quite a while for it to get to this point before uh, manufacturers have you know been told by uh, the Supreme Court that they don't have a case um, against 
this uh, this legislation? Do you think that they will actually go, okay, well, we'll give money to the, the health service? Um, well, interestingly enough, I actually work with a trade union on a campaign about saving jobs in the whiskey industry. Um, and I find it very unlikely that these companies would not try to oppose if it was a tax or a minimum pricing. Um, I think it's very unlikely as well that they will give charitable donations to our, you know, whether it's charities or our services, that will be, you know, enough to equate to how much the minimum pricing will add. So I think a tax would be better overall, but I'm not saying it wouldn't face opposition, but there have been an increase in alcohol taxes throughout the past 30, 40 years, you know, consistently. Um, you, you're right, it probably will face more opposition, actually. it's a good point, but... Thaddeus, do you think that the money should go back to the state or should it stay with the drink with the manufacturing companies? Well, I think ideally it should go back to the state. I'm actually at a loss as to why the SNP has introduced it as a minimum price rather than a tax. There may be a technical legal reason I'm unaware of. I don't know whether anyone actually knows. It, it could be some sort of devolution issue. I don't know. Obviously, I'd rather the, the state had control of the money. So, as we've mentioned, uh, it yes, could the, be targeted. The SNP did say that they wouldn't, they couldn't put it back into the health service immediately because it was a dev- that wasn't a devolved matter. Ah, okay, yeah. so that's why. But I'm not, I'm a conservative, I'm not opposed to private industry having money either. I mean, I think a private, private industry such as the whiskey industry will then be incentivized <coughs> to invest further in newer, more in- innovative products or perhaps exporting their products abroad rather than selling them here with that extra cash. So it's not the end of the world, I suppose. But potentially at the cost of not helping people with their health? Well, private companies are not there to help people with their health. They're there to make money. So I wouldn't blame them for that. And if there is a legal reason why the state can't have this money, well, then the, the private industry will be able to spend it themselves. Jack? I think in regards to the legislation that you talked about there, I believe as something to do with the, the European Union as well. But um, again, I don't have the, the exact kind of uh, clause on me. Is what I will say is while the money is going back to these private companies, I think there is a duty for these private companies such as Tesco's, uh, Asda, or, or any you know kind of um, resellers that might actually be hit by this tax as well and have to put their, their things up, is to actually invest back into the local community. So, uh, for example, if the famous grouse was, uh, sorry, had to pay a bit more kind of tax uh, to, to, to make up for that loss... Um, sorry, let me start that again. Ever mm. ever company like Famous Grouse, a got more profit from that drink, then it would be up to that company to ensure that the local community benefits from that. It could be planting uh, a new garden close by. It could be uh, putting in a new play park. It, that that sort of thing. It could be investing in a local charity. So I think the onus is on these private companies in the meantime to ensure that money is actually well spent and not just going back into the uh, profit margin. I want to also ask about uh, drinking culture with sporting activities and football and things like that. Do you think that these alcohol backers should be taken away from, should be stopped from, you know, sponsoring sport in order to try and help ease uh, drinking culture around games and around football? It's a very good question, actually, because there's also a debate going on in football about whether um, betting agencies should be able to be sponsored, particularly on the shirts, when they are actually, you know, they are running bets on those games that those players are playing. Um, I think it's a very interesting discussion about how we sponsor sports in general. And of course, you could 
also bring in that there's still debate around whether alcohol should be allowed at football because of course it isn't allowed at football and it is allowed at rugby um it's a, it's a difficult one because in an ideal world i want to say no we should be able to advertise alcohol however i think there does need to be much harsher restrictions thereof or at least when they do sponsor them they need to have come with some kind of drink aware message which they don't always do um with you know links to what kind of support the government can offer or private groups etc rather than just you know having a big brand name plastered somewhere it's a difficult issue Thaddeus? i would actually crack down on alcohol um advertising and and sponsoring of football and, and sports because they it's such a an effective means of advertising it does c- encourage so much drinking um at football matches at rugby matches at cricket matches even um, that, that i don't think it's necessarily healthy and i would go further i'd for example ban gambling advertisements when, when watching sport as well because I, d- I don't think it's particularly healthy again i'm in disagreement with the libertarians mm-hmm. in my party but I, I do i do think it's it's the best way to to make a healthier society and what about um taxes on legislation being brought in for excessive drinking on nights out because we have this which is going after cheap booze that you know can lead to alcoholism and things like that what do you think jack about going and uh, trying to get money out of excessive drinking on nights out and making sure people don't go too far with 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 partying it's an interesting point and I think it should be the responsibility of governments to ensure that they're not just cracking down, uh, so to speak, on on one particular activity. We saw of the Offensive uh, Behaviour Football Act, um, in which all four opposition parties in Holyrood recently voted against, uh, voted for repelling, um, that cracking down on very specific activities doesn't make sense in the long run. As for nights out themselves, I think they're more uh, an effect than a cause. I think they're more an effect of our, our hyper-drinking culture and whether or not we did have nights out or it became absolutely too expensive for anyone to actually go on a night out, I think we'd still have an alcohol problem and I don't think that would go any ways of actually resolving it. Um, but I think both Kai and Thaddeus raised um, good points there about um, in the scope of advertising at football matches because um, there's a lot of impressionable young people there and it's, we do need to be very, very careful how we can conduct ourselves. Uh, so we're going to go on to television and social media. Uh, so every show that we know and love, intentionally or otherwise, uses social media from reality television to political discussion shows like this. And stars can often appear overnight on the internet in programmes like University Challenge. We've had, um, We've had contestants who have become almost household names very very quickly but because of the internet but are is it ruining our experience of watching television so if i just want to come to you first is every show that we watch now turning into reality tv no i don't think so at all i mean university i love university challenge i think it's a great show and i don't think it's anything like reality tv if some producers and some contestants want to get together and make some spin-off show with two particularly quirky <laughs> contestants that's entirely up to them and people can watch it or not i don't and if that's facilitated by Twitter, well, then good for Twitter. But there's nothing wrong with University Challenge. I'm meaning that when you take stars, you know, people who have appeared on these television programmes and they become, you know, very recognisable faces very, very quickly because of the internet, do you not think that's... Is that an issue, really? I I don't think it is. I mean, mm-hmm. people people cannot watch their TV shows if they want. They cannot read their books. They cannot listen to their podcasts if they want to. It's a free country. I, I don't think it's really an issue at all. But I, obviously, I'm in 
a minority here? I don't know. Kai? Yeah, I mean, actually, I don't think it's that much of an issue, really. Um, I think, actually, I was reading the other day, it was in The Hollywood Reporter, about how we've entered a new golden age in television. And it's not necessarily talking about just the, you know, because obviously quality of television is quite subjective, but in how much money is being spent on television, the audience reach and whatnot. And that's probably because television has evolved beyond just television. Even when we refer to television now, you know, half the shows are now on Netflix or Amazon Prime or whatever. There's a million different sources now. And of course, there's a million different sources all over the world. In China, you have completely different things, but are very similar. So I think, I don't know, I think social media is too ingrained in our culture now to say it's it's something that can be reversed and it's something that we can kind of move away from. And I also think we already ha- we've always had this kind of thing with celebrity in our societies. You know, when since TV started, since radio started, even before then, we've always had a thing about basically being fans of certain people or certain groups. It's, it's a long-running theme in society. You know? Social media might have exacerbated, but it's certainly not caused that problem. So I don't think it's that big of an issue, really. Jack, following on from what Kai was saying, do you think that social media is now essential for talking about television since we've got things like non-linear programming and you know, streaming services like Netflix and Hulu and Amazon Prime? I don't think it's absolutely essential, but if that's how people want to enjoy it, then there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, back in the early 60s, people wanted uh, to watch their shows in colour, and that was the next step they took. And then in the 80s, they wanted to have 100 more channels to choose from, and that was the next step. And nowadays they might want a second screen with it or they might want to watch it at a time that suits them. I see nothing inherently wrong with that at all. It's just the the next kind of natural progression for television to take, and especially if television is going to survive the next kind of 20 years as well. It needs to really adapt to our lifestyles, and we shouldn't be having to adapt to the, the box that's sitting in the corner of our room's lifestyles. I would also make the point that actually one of the only industries where in, in terms of the media, where we've seen quite a breakup in big companies. Actually, you you see this narrative on the media about how net, how big Netflix is and how big Amazon is, but actually the companies that make, and the production companies that make TV shows, there has never been such a diversity of production companies. There's never been such a diversity of TV shows that are available, of not just TV shows, let's talk about podcasts, radio, even radio's made a, re- a comeback relative to its declining numbers. We're very glad uh, that it has. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I mean, I think, I think social media culture overall has been a positive to that, um, looking at it more broadly. Obviously, there are negatives to social media culture and how it can exacerbate negative traits in our society, how it can encourage, as we were talking about anorexia and whatnot earlier. But I think overall, it has a positive effect. Mm-hmm. I want to ask you guys, how many of you sit down and with a, with a physical television and sit and watch TV? And how many of us you know, get tablets and phones out and watch, watch it like that? I watch television exclusively through my PlayStation 4, to be honest. I can't remember the last time I, uh, I said, oh, it's 9 o'clock, my favourite programme's coming on. And, you know, it might be something to do with trying to cram too much into one time, but... You know, without even thinking about it, I'll pick up my phone, I'll start scrolling through Twitter, I'll start scrolling through Facebook. And, you know, I watch television to unwind. I don't watch television to learn any great new things. If if that's how I choose to enjoy the time, then that's how I'll do it. I mean, that's what you just said there, I think, raises the point. That's how social media is destroying television and any other thing. It's it's the automatic instinct to go and pick up Twitter whenever you're doing anything else that's destroying mm. our attention span and so you could argue it's destroying our our enjoyment of television that's I think how you might be able to argue that social media is destroying television but no not by any other means and I've also don't even own a television I watch it by iPad and mm. laptop so 
Sorry? I mean, yeah, I'm the same. I, I rarely watch television. There's a few times I've watched television. I was watching the new X-Files series, which you could only watch on Channel 5 for whatever reason. Um, and occasionally I'll watch TV with my mum or something like that. But it's it's not often. I just tend to watch you know, YouTube videos on my phone or Netflix on my tablet on my computer or Amazon Prime Video, you know, whatever. And I do think it's important to note the changes social media has to our media. I mean, actually, you know, YouTube videos and that Twitch streaming and all that type of thing is pretty much as popular as TV these days. And those videos are more than more often than not tend to be very condensed, very short form. And that doesn't mean they're not an art form and they are not of such high quality, but it does mean they're convenience. They're much more of a convenience product than long form TV is. But it, long, again, then again, long form TV like that article I was reading is still, you know, increasing its numbers recently. So, I, I mean, it, it's funny. I think um, it, it speaks more to the quality level, quality television I consume that I instinctively kind of reach for my my <laughs> phone and and, um, and watch. I mean, there are good things out there, but I think television again, it's it's more an industry than it is an art form now and if they the creators of of programming try and make something last four seasons with 24 episodes a season and you're expected to you know binge watch that and just get it all at once then your attention span is going to go i think that's quite natural i think if you know 20 30 years ago we had the option to be able to start scrolling through our phone then i think we'd be doing it then as well yeah, I should say I wasn't referring specifically to you. Though. No, it's to people in general. I'm sure your attention span is very good. Thank you. <laughs> I want to ask, um, going on to things about attention span and how long we can focus on something. There's been this revelation of slow television. Of you know, BBC Four recently did some documentaries over Christmas time where they put a camera on top of a um, a sleigh and then let it go through Lapland. Do you think we need more programs which can stop distracting us from what we're watching? Do you think that we need to get our attention spans back? I certainly think so. I mean, I'm glad one thing that BBC has the money to invest in that when they're putting up the licence fee, so that's definitely good. Um, but I, I do think s- slow television programmes are, are good for increasing our attention span, making sure people get involved in the story and the, or the drama or the documentary or whatever it is. But it's, it's, it's probably only a plaster over a gaping wound that we probably cannot cure. It's, you know, to mix metaphors, it's out of the box now, so it's nothing that, that, that can be done. I mean, actually, another an anecdotal evidence of a TV show that came back probably due to social media was Twin Peaks. I don't know if any mm-hmm. of you have watched Twin Peaks, but the Return series, which they had, was pretty much entirely an art project. If you do ever get the chance to watch the Twin Peaks new series, you definitely should, uh, although it's it's much more of an experience than a TV show. But then again, that was ba- brought back you know, entirely by this kind of social media and fandom culture. And that is most certainly not something that you you need a you would have a short attention span for. It's something that's very long form television that you need a really long attention span for. So that that is interesting. What other goods do you think that um, social media can bring to television other than putting money into David Lynch's pockets? <laughs> well, I think putting money into Chairman David Lynch's <laughs> pocket is always good. But no, um, you know, I would hope that we can not just revive projects which is something we tend to do a lot, revive TV shows, revive films. And don't get me wrong, some of those are great and some of those are excellent. Um, and, you know, a lot of TV shows did die before their time due to budget constraints and whatnot. But I think we should be looking to make more original products. Obviously, the more products there are, the harder that is. But we should be looking to make more original uh, TV that is more artistic. Um, and I don't know whether social media does always encourage that. I think it's not a question of whether it does or it doesn't. It's kind of a 
half and half thing. Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. But I think we should definitely be looking for social media to encourage that kind of long form television that's more artistic. I'm sure Hollywood would blame audiences' tastes for make constantly remaking um, old TV shows or old movies, and audiences would blame Hollywood for always having to go, always going to see old remakes of old movies. I don't know, I don't know how we necessarily fix that issue, other than making as, as speaking as a conservative, as vibrant an economy as possible uh, to ensure that TV studios can invest in in new ideas and 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 making sure education systems can bring up new producers and new writers and new directors. I mean, you know, when people say the word community, a lot of people think of, you know, maybe five to ten people sitting in an old church hall or whatever <laughs> discussing potholes, but it's what social media brings with these television shows is community in some kind of abstract form or another. You can discuss a show while it's happening, you know, be it The Wire, be it Benidorm and everything in between. And it's absolutely fabulous. And I think that is a major benefit that can't be understated enough. I mean, it's equivalent of, again, I'm not obsessed with pubs, but uh, it's equivalent of going to the pub and watching it or going around to friends and all watching it together. I think there's something quite powerful in having that kind of live interaction there. And finally, before we go, a television show that each of you would recommend that we watch. Kai, do you want to start since we've had at least two from you already? Okay, well, can I, can I recommend two then? Go ahead. You should watch Why not? all of Twin Peaks, <laughs> and you should watch uh, the new Star Trek Discovery series. I'm that much of a nerd. Well, I've said my two. I'd probably say Benidorm and The Wire. Two opposite ends of the spectrum. Yeah. One's drama, one's comedy. <laughs> Polar ends. Absolutely, but you know what? Challenge yourself and and look at things from either end of the spectrum, and you can appreciate it a bit more. That's what I always feel. Adios. I'm sure you've all watched it, but I was absolutely blown away by Blue Planet 2. Mm. And that we're, we're talking about drama here, but documentaries are just as good mm. about drawing you in and getting you to think about issues and talk to other people, people about issues. And I think it's one of the best TV shows ever made. And if I'm going to throw my hat into the ring, um, I would say Collateral's been very good. And um, I have to be warned not to say Doctor Who, but I'm going to say it now. Um, <laughs> I'd, I'd also recommend Dispatches. Well, thank you for joining me around the table this week, guys. Thank, thank you, you very much. Cheers. Cheers. Round the Table was created by David Chipakupaku. This episode was written by Donna Kavanagh and David Chipakupaku. The show was presented by David Chipakupaku and produced by Donna Kavanagh. Thanks for listening to this week's Round the Table. If you've enjoyed the show, please leave us a little review on iTunes and subscribe to us using whatever podcatcher you deem necessary. For more awesome student radio, visit dropthaboom.com or visit Boom Scotland on Twitter. <laughs>